think I say something in the book about like the, the church mothers who live in my neighborhood, who'll be like, I'll hold your faith for you. Mm. Um, this idea that like, well, of course you're not going to believe this every day of your life. Nobody does. Like, of course you're not going to be able to hold on to this all the time. Nobody does. That's why we have each other. That's why we're a body. That's why like this, this community matters because I'll hold your faith for you when you can't hold on to Mm. it. Um, I will believe for you when you can't believe, right? Like I'll carry my friend up on the roof and dig through the roof and lower them to Jesus, right? Mm. Mm. Like those kind of ideas of, uh, of, of course we can't hold on to it ourselves. And so I think we've done a real big disservice to salvation and conversations about it when we have turned it into this like hyper-personal thing. Hey there, everybody. How are you doing? I hope you're well. I am stressed. School starts back on Tuesday. So as of release of this episode, that's in like 48 hours. And that's crazy because I don't know what that's going to look like. I hope that your fall is beginning less stressful than mine. Megan Westra came on the show. Someone on Twitter connected the two of us and you'll hear us joking and bantering about a bit on the show. I'm not good at scheduling and that's no secret and this, that, and the other. And four months later, we finally made it happen. But she came on on the launch day of her show on her, what she called the book birthday. And I was so thankful that she did. And so we cover a lot of ground. I laugh a lot, and those are always my favorite. However, before we hit play, I wanted to thank the two newest people that have joined the community over at Patreon. So thank you to Steve, and thank you, Laura. If you haven't done so, consider doing so, or rating and reviewing the show. The rest of the things that we all ask you to do, and uh, it's for a reason, it really does matter, but I've said it before, and I mean it every time, the show is not a possibility without the patrons, and... I am thankful, and I know the many, many people that listen to the show are thankful for each and every single one of you. Here we go. Let's roll the tape with Megan Westrup. Basically, I'm facing a complacency of an amazing dream. While the latency of time's metronome sets the tone to 83. One year away from the future, shooters and lazy teens that ponder and might decay into squandering life away. And the fear that you might convey isn't real, just the flight's delayed. Nevertheless, it seems better to stress or feel depressed at the terminal check when leaving the nest. Um, be anxious for nothing, but with every request, let patience hover like spaceships above you. Just face it, he loves you with a love that's amazing, like races up to on CBS. Success is now in the past, present, and future tense. Tensely hoping and wishing and missing the wisdom that's Megan, to get welcome to the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I'm excited that you're here, and I'm also thankful, and I wanted to wait to say this on the record. I am the worst at Twitter, email, social media, and, um, Thank you for, I was very slow to respond to you many, many, many times. And I have a lot of excuses for those. None of them are really appropriate, but thanks for being here tonight. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. And, and, you know, when you did finally respond to me, then I was moving. And so then I didn't respond to you either. <laughs> and so I feel like we're, we're even, we're even. <laughs> well, I was not moving. Um, <laughs> yeah. What is that like in the middle of a pandemic moving from well, house A to house B? 
Yeah. So we, we were only moving like 12 blocks. We went from a duplex, uh, that we were kind of renting into a home that we own now. Mm. Um, so we were able to move a lot of our boxes ourselves Mm -hmm. like over the course of like two weeks, which is a different kind of awful because then you just don't know where any of your stuff is. And like, is is this at the new house or the old house? Um, and you have like two yards to mow and you have like, anyway, it's, it's a good exercise. Whole, oh my gosh, it's a terrible <laughs> idea. Um, but it meant that we could do just, you know, a few people all masked up on Saturday to move the furniture yeah. in, in a pretty short window of time. So, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's okay, but I wouldn't recommend it. Like if you don't have to move during a pandemic, then maybe don't, um, <laughs> then don't do it. stay the course, maybe, maybe, maybe just wait. <laughs> um, I just realized there they are that I put your notes. So the downside of reading the electronic copies is I don't have oh, my yeah. paper to write in and highlight in. Mm-hmm. So I have your notes over on the left here. It is your book's birthday. I think that's the first it time is. I've ever used that in in a sentence before today. And I think I stole it from you or, or maybe somebody that you retweeted. But yeah. I liked it. I was like, you know what? Most people could be doing other things on their book birthday and you're here. So I'm talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I genuinely really enjoyed your book. And Thank again, you. thanks for being here. So just a little bit to know about me. I don't ever ask any of the questions that the publishers send. I find them ridiculous. Um, so I like, <laughs> I like, those are like the, those are the questions for people that don't read the books. So sure. um, I tend to ask different questions. And so just roll with me. Sarcasm is my yeah. love language. And so we'll, we'll go there. It's so great. <laughs> I guess I once was asked to preach in a church service. And I was like, this is going to go horribly because <laughs> no so i never did i i did teach in the youth once and it still was horrible the amount of sarcasm for sixth and seventh graders didn't mm, it didn't no. it didn't level up so the first question is legitimately that so the title of your book is, is born again again correct born again and again dang it see that there's a, that see, and. there's an and there this is ridiculous i don't believe this i have to look i don't believe it well, you, born again and again you're ridiculous yeah it, it's that's true you you know what the yeah. title of the book is that is my first question so i listened to you on one other podcast and in reading all of this I, I have to feel like we're very similar in age and so you don't have to answer your age but i'm 38 and some change so i don't mm-hmm. know what yours age is but i feel like based on the stories you tell much younger than you are you really no, I'm in my 30s. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop screwing with you. But no. no, that's fair. I'm, thir- I'm, I'm almost 33. Um, but so much, much younger. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, yeah, either way. So I grew up, I got saved 97 times and then I went to Liberty. And at Spiritual oh, yeah. Emphasis Ooh. Week, we're doing it. Like, we are doing this. We're not you ending combat. Liberty. Yeah. Yeah, because... I didn't know any better at the time. Um, <laughs> I'm thankful for that. I went there. It, it impacted my life greatly, but yeah, I never displayed my, it's, it's actually over there rolled up my diploma. Um, I w- I've sure. never displayed it. I don't degree diploma. I don't know what the word is. That's how good the education was. Yeah. Degree or diploma. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah. Why does that give you pause? Like you, you shot up when I said I went to Liberty. Oh no. So I grew up in Virginia. So I just, oh. I, I know of Liberty. I went to college for a weekend. I mm. almost went there. Uh, there were, you know, some some concerns in my homeschool group about like, is Liberty conservative enough or not? 
<laughs> See, for me, so, the concerns were liberty is not conservative. Like liberty was yeah. more liberal than, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Where in Virginia? I live right outside of Charlottesville now. Oh, word. Um, I grew up right on the West Virginia, Virginia border. Uh, so like Blacksburg would be the. Oh, cool, Southwest Virginia. Yeah. Town. Yeah. Yeah. Southwest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, right there. Yeah. At, at points on the West Virginia side, at points on the Virginia side, it depends on what age of my life we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can be in West Virginia in an hour, just driving yeah. straight West, going up to like the Cass Railroads. I don't know if you've ever been yeah, up there or not. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't know the first time I went, I wore a nice shirt and I got cinders all over it, covered in ash and I've never, it does anyway, traumatized. So, <laughs> but what is the proper number of times to be born again and again and again? Oh, I mean, when I was a kid and like growing up, it was like until you feel that like peace that everybody is describing and whenever the (laughs) preacher is preaching and like both actively trying to make you feel really guilty about your life and all the sins you never committed because you weren't allowed to, but (laughs) also like apparently there's this like sense of joy and peace and freedom and lightness. And so I never got that. And so I got saved many, 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 many times. Um, I mean, if we're going to follow the thread of my book, though, I would say you never arrive mm. like, instead of again and again and again. It's just like you just never stop yeah. um, becoming saved. Yeah. No, I like that. We would we would call that theosis to use a fancy word or mm. I, I would anyway. Um, I'm going to keep yeah. the words at dime or nickel size words. That's a quarter size word. So we'll I'll scale it back. <laughs> per, but you can use whatever size you know, word you want. It's all right. I went to seminary. I've got my, my <laughs> diploma. Back there. It's displayed. Uh, it is displayed, <laughs> but that's only because it came in the mail last week. So I'm still really excited about oh, it. Oh, you just finished? Yeah, I finished in June. Mm-hmm. I, I realized upon you saying that, that I skipped the first question that I usually ask, which is what <laughs> makes Megan, Megan? Like if you were to, you know, in a nutshell, like what are the big impactful things oh. that are like, yeah, here's why I am what I am. Yeah, no, I think that I have had a whole lot of people who have kind of loved me to life, right? That's a Cornell West quote is, you know, I am who I am because somebody loved me. Mm. And uh, so I can look back through so many different seasons of my life, so many different instances and communities of people who loved me, loved me well. Um, you know, certainly like in in the present day, my, my spouse and my daughter are hugely significant in that regard. Um, and then just finishing seminary, some dear professors and friends. Um, so yeah, a lot of relationships, the big theme in the book is like connection over consumption. So I'm real big on relationships and, uh, lots of coffee (laughs) and a, large amount of vegan food if I can find it. I'm a vegetarian, but if Ah. there's a really good vegan restaurant, then, you know, I'll go hardcore and just be like, you know what? Don't give me any butter either. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's, that's kind of what makes me tick. Lots of books. I read a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. When we moved into our new house within 24 hours, I had unpacked all of my books. I had not unpacked 80% (laughs) of the kitchen um, and didn't know where any of my clothes were. But the books were done yeah. as yeah. priorities. So my wife hates the amount of books that I have, um, mm-hmm. which is also why I'm thankful that people send digital copies of books or I can buy digital copies because I can hide, <laughs> I can hide my, my addiction. For a while, I was getting a book like every day. And she's like, this is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You have to give them away. And it was like, she oh. asked for my children, 
which are also yeah. her children. Is your <laughs> is your spouse the same way, or do they like no read the books? I want to read the books too because it's an argument for us. I really yeah, want another so, bookshelf. So he was a pastor's kid, mm. so he kind of gets it. I think there are times, certainly when I was writing my book, when I would be like, I, I really need to do more research. And he was like, I think if you're writing, the the key operative there is you you write. And I was like, no, I really think I need to get another book to research <laughs> for my book. He's like, pretty understanding, <laughs> but there are moments where it's like, really, did you need another I book? I did. I did. I, it was actually a physical compulsion. I started shaking and... <laughs> I needed it. So. <laughs> yeah. What took her over the top was when I got Robert Alter's Hebrew Bible. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, if you don't have it every so often, it's on sale. But she's like, yes. you already have like seven copies of the Bible. I was like, yeah, but this one, read this with me. She's like, this is, you're ridiculous. There's no reason you need all this. I was like, but <laughs> this I, is a, I do. a better copy of the Bible for <laughs> this specific purpose. It's like four copies because of all the stuff. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you talk quite <laughs> a bit about salvation at the beginning of your book. And I think specifically in light of the way that many Americans do church, that word salvation is bandied about as like the carrot, the reward oh, yeah. for proper behavior. So I'm hoping for people listening, you could just kind of, when I, when you say salvation, like here's what you're actually talking about and maybe contrast that versus the way it's normally bandied about. Yeah. So in the book, I, I talk about salvation in terms of like conformity to Christ. Like that's the bigger thread that pulls through in the later chapters is uh, this idea of like unlearning and returning, right? Like how do we uh, unlearn the stories and the patterns that we've all picked up along the way in our life? You know, you can think of yourself like uh, like a piece of Velcro or something, right? Or like if you go for a walk in the woods and you get all those like little stickers, you know, caught in your socks and you're, you know, we just pick things up along the way. And some of them are intentionally taught to us. Some of them we just kind of are constantly brushing past them, Um Things like some of the bigger systems I call out in the book, like sexism and misogyny, racism, mm -hmm. white supremacy, things like that, where it's just like nobody intentionally sat me down and said, okay, here's why we think white people are better. Hmm. Nobody ever did that, but I was just constantly brushing up against it. And it just like starts to stick to you like those little briars. And so this idea then of like, okay, if, if the goal of my life is to be conformed to Christ, which is like real biblical because I'm a Bible nerd at the end of the day. <laughs> um, if the goal is to be conformed to Christ, then those little briars don't fit. They, they aren't part of that. And so I have some unlearning to do and some returning to do. But in that, in that conformity to Christ, I am also getting my life back, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm also becoming more of, of like a, what it means to be human essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, because I'm not basing my identity on these little like briar bushes that are stuck to my socks. That would be ridiculous if we were coming in from a hike up by the railroad in West Virginia and you were all covered in soot mm. and, <laughs> and we had all these briars stuck to our socks and you were just like, you know what? I just identify with these briars and this is now the basis of my personality. I would be like, Seth, that is ridiculous. That is the most <laughs> absurd thing I'd ever heard. But we have done that with different systems of power, with different cultural constructs and things like that. And then you bring it into the church and people will say, well, just preach the gospel and leave 
justice out of it, leave race out of it, yeah. leave gender out of it, like, yeah, all of that stuff. Um, and so I think when we create salvation in this idea of like, it's a purely spiritual thing. It's about my soul. When I die mm -hmm. going up to live the most boring afterlife ever floating around on a cloud, which does not sound like an enjoyable experience in the first place, you know, then you can ignore the briars. Yeah. You can ignore the little things that have stuck to that belief along the way. Well, because I'm ditching my body and nothing else really matters. And the systems of this world don't matter. And the creation doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is my soul. Yeah. Um, and so I really have tried to, to push against that and say, no, like the here and now matters. Your body matters. The creation matters. Uh, your neighbor's body matters. Uh, the creation, part of creation that your neighbor is living in matters. Um, and so how do we bring all of that into conformity with Christ? And what are the things that we have to unlearn so that we can return to who we really are. Mm. What did you study in seminary? Like, what's the finality? Like, what is the, the, the degree? I don't know what the word is, the degree. The degree? Yeah. Um, so I have a master's of divinity, um, which is the most, like, absurd-sounding degree ever, because then it's just like, I mastered God. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Nailed which it. Is not, that's what my husband likes to say. Like, when my diploma came, he's like, oh, look, it's your certificate for mastering God. And I was like, please never say that again. Um <laughs> But uh, I would yeah, put it so on a I'm, coffee mug and send it, <laughs> send it to my wife. Just <laughs> uh, masters of divinity, and then my emphasis was in community development. Mm. Um, yeah, mm. the community development makes a lot of sense actually with the stuff in the book. Yep. I'm probably going to bounce around a lot because we referenced that I'm not cool. a fan of the other the other questions. Can I quote your book to you? Yeah, that's possible. fine. Yeah. See, there's uh, a just don't leave out any words like you did in the title of my book when you forgot the and. <laughs> hey, listen, I read this on this. <laughs> I read it on my phone. That's impressive. It, it, it took a minute. Yeah, and so, but when you can only see two paragraphs at a time. <laughs> um, you know, it's the struggle is real. All right, if you leave out any words, I'll forgive you. It's okay. Tell you what, people can buy the book and they can see if I leave out words because I don't exactly. know the page numbers again because it's digital. Ooh. So there's a part yeah. in here though, and you talked about it a bit about you know the church, its addiction to power and how it identifies like if we're going to call power another one of those briars, which arguably all of those briars are a form of flexed, unearned sure. power that's been yep. given by a government. That's a different topic. Um, but you have in here for the first three quarters of Western church history, and more than, more than that outside the Western context, salvation was not a private matter worked out in a person's heart. Rather, it was conceived of as a communal state. I don't think that we talk about salvation that way. So can you rip apart communal state a bit? Because you talked a bit a minute ago about you know, my personal salvation, but I yeah. don't understand communal state. Communal state. So in the early church, I mean, like, like the quote you just read, um, mm -hmm. so outside and outside of the West, you know, for even longer, um, this idea of you would choose on your own terms in your own life. This is the time when I have decided to walk down this aisle and profess that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I am going to hold that belief all on my own. And the pastor or priest or whoever is going to, you know, kind of be like, all right, there you go. And now you're in charge of making sure that you stay faithful to this walk of faith was just not a thing. And there are references in scriptures where, you know, it talks about like, and the whole household was baptized, right? Hmm. You know, some of that is like Greco-Roman household codes, but some of that is also this idea that like, 
this is bigger than an individual person. Um, and belief systems bind us as more than just individuals. Um, so in the ancient world, your religious affiliation would affect what kind of commerce you could engage in and things like that. And so, you know, it wasn't just a matter of like, well, do you feel like you belong to this community? Do you mm -hmm. feel like you believe this? Like, does this fit with your personal needs? Um, it was like, no, like what, what community are you a part of? What community are you responsible to? What community holds you accountable? And so this still exists in, you know, in different ways in, in current church contexts. Mm -hmm. I have seen it most frequently, um, in like black church contexts and, you know, people that I know who attend historically black churches and congregations who will talk about, and I think I say something in the book about like the, the church mothers who live in my neighborhood, who'll be like, I'll hold your faith for you. Mm. Um, this idea that like, well, of course you're not going to believe this every day of your life. Nobody does. Like, of course you're not going to be able to hold yeah. on to this all the time. Nobody does. That's why we have each other. That's why we're a body. That's why like, this this community matters because I'll hold your faith for you when you can't hold on to. Mm. Um, I will believe for you when you can't believe, right? Like I'll carry my friend up on the roof and dig through the roof and lower them to Jesus, right? Mm. Mm. Like those kind of ideas yeah. of, uh, of, of course we can't hold on to it ourselves. And so I think we've done a really big disservice to salvation and conversations about it when we have turned it into this like hyper-personal thing, not only because then it often turns into this like overly spiritual thing where nothing in this life matters. Uh, but I think also then you can look at the people who will go through seasons of doubt, who go through seasons of questioning and will walk away from the faith entirely, which, you know, not knocking that. I know that that's, you know, that's the path that some people walk and it's a very good path for them. But I think that we have said that, no, you have to believe it and you have to believe it this way. And it has to be that all the time and you can't question it and you can't doubt and you can't push against it. And you can't be like, ah, today I'm not really feeling it because then, well, that's no good. Yeah. And you're, well, you're probably backsliding or living in sin or whatever when that's just a, a completely unreasonable expectation to put on people, that's not faith then at that point. Right. Faith and certainty are not good bub fellows. Mm. Uh, there's not, not a whole lot of certainty in a life of faith. At the beginning there, when you were describing salvation, I don't know why, but for me, it sounded a lot like a wedding. You walk down the aisle, pastor's mm -hmm. up there, you're betrothed, now go off on your own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also um, a horrible way to hold marriage. <laughs> For the record, you're just like, hey, you kids, go work out that shared life together and uh, blending of your two family systems and all your expectations that you're bringing out. into that. And you'll figure it out. Don't ask anyone for help. <laughs> That's going to work really well. Uh, honey, if you're listening, we're doing it great. You and I, we're doing, we're doing it great as she, as she sleeps above me. <laughs> the bulk of the middle of your book is the parts that I kept coming back to. You call it, what do you call it? Hold on. Um, unlearning and relearning. Like there's a whole section mm -hmm. there and you just bounce back and forth between. And there were so many topics in there that I, I was surprised at how much ground you covered. You know, you went through race, patriarchy, sexism, uh, power, capitalism, prosperity gospel, and I'm missing 86 other topics. So I'm mm -hmm. curious though, 
which one of those was the hardest for you to personally tackle? Not necessarily write about where you're like, yeah, this one, this one cost five more books and 27 more researches. The money chapter was really difficult for me because I just, I hate money. I hate thinking about money. I hate talking about money. Oh my. I'm really annoyed that Jesus talked about it as much as he did, because if he didn't, then I could just ignore it. But there's a whole lot of money in the Bible. And so I feel like we have to deal with that. And so I would be very content if we just went totally back to like a barter kind of economy (laughs) where I could be like, I baked you this loaf of bread. And so now you can give me like some apples and that would be great. Except for I'm a writer. And so I don't have a whole lot of like barterable skills. (laughs) Um, I did learn to bake bread during the pandemic though. So I could do that. (laughs) And so the money chapter was really challenging for me to write. um, Because I was just like, I would just rather not think about this. Um, Yeah. And just kind of be like, well, I don't know. You should probably just give away as much money as you can and then try your best to pay your bills. But that's really hard because there are all these oppressive systems and student loans and loss of jobs, especially now. Yeah, Uh, That wasn't a reality when I was writing the book. Mm. But yeah. And so that chapter was really hard because it's also so, not that the other things I wrote about aren't sensitive, But I feel like money hits people in a really deep place where there's a lot of like shame bound up in that. It is such an overwhelming thing. Now that I'm saying all this out loud, I'm like, well, that is true for race and gender and all these other things too. (laughs) Uh, I don't like talking about money though. So I was like, yeah, I I didn't like, I didn't like writing that one. Yeah, I get that. Um, I don't know if you know this or not. So I am actually the, like the vice president of a branch of a bank of a massive oh, <laughs> money is my jam. Not, I mean, it's fine. My wife also is like, whatever. I don't want to talk about money. Uh, and I honestly, I think most people don't want to talk about money. I, however, thrive in it. Um, I would talk about, you give me the Bible and you give me economics and I am, I would rather watch that than the Super Bowl. Um, That's so great. There's less concussions too. <laughs> yes. Uh, no waivers. Um, there's definitely social distancing because nobody wants to be around me. Yeah. So it, it works out. <laughs> it works out well. But I will say, so I had a friend call me today. He's like, I have a question. Mortgage, this one. Here's my cars. Here's some of my debt. Can you run the math in your head? Tell me what to do. And I was like, mm-hmm. sure. And at the end, he's like, appreciate it. I think my wife's going to be on board. I was like, make it your idea. You can be the hero. I don't really care. You just go do your go do your thing. Good luck to you. Um, yeah. So I think that I don't think you're the only person that struggles with money because I see so many people that struggle with money. But I'm curious, how does the church get a grips on its money? Because we just hoard money like the, the, the mm-hmm. big C church when we could literally wave a wand and help people. Uh, but we have endowment funds and pretty brick buildings and we own massive amounts of property and et cetera. So yeah. what would you say about like churches we need to come to grips with money? Like what should a church do or the, the church do with its wealth? I think that especially right now with so many churches not utilizing those fancy brick buildings and all these different things, I think we're in a really interesting moment to ask some really important questions that are long overdue. You know, I think that space to worship is important. I also think that what we have decided is like a necessity for that, particularly like for churches who are trying to do like modern or contemporary worship. And so it's like, well, yeah, and we need LED lights Mm -hmm. and we need machines and we need, it just seems really out of touch with what is actually needed for worship. Mm -hmm. 
I would like to see more churches. And I talk about a few different examples in the book of different churches or different congregations who have taken on medical debt or who have taken on student loan debt or things like that in their community and said, we're just going to cover this. We're going to pay this off for you. And I'm hearing, like I've heard more stories about things like that, even since the book went to print of different, you know, whether it was individual congregations or conferences within a denomination who have said, no, we are going to pull our resources and do this. And I think that there are some good small steps that that certain congregations and denominations are taking in that. I think we could do a lot more. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot more uh, resource allocation that could happen where you just decide, okay, no, if we're going to talk about following Jesus, who literally opened his ministry in the book of Luke anyway, with like good news for the poor, like that's where it starts. Yeah. Then that's pretty hard to get over. And he wasn't talking about the poor in spirit. Um, so what does it look like to actually proclaim a gospel? What if we were churches that the first thing people thought of when you said church was they were like, oh man, if you've got a really active church in your community, that's so good for the poor in your community. That's not what people say about churches right now. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah. I just think like, what, how would the world look different? And so I think thinking beyond just that init- that immediate need, like a lot of churches are, pretty good at like these compassion based ministries of like, well, we're going to provide a food pantry or we're going to provide a clothes closet or whatever. And those things are helpful as like meeting acute needs. They don't do anything to address the question of why do we need to have a food pantry? Mm. Why do we need to have a clothing closet? Like why are people getting into such a position that they don't know how they're going to get their next meal? And those are the questions that I think we absolutely need to be asking. Those don't feel good though. And those challenge our assumptions about what is ours and what we deserve. Mm. They challenge our assumptions about morality and like, you know, can you be a good person and not know where your next meal is coming from? Because, you know, deep down a lot of people I think have this sort of like superiority complex of like, well, I wouldn't end up in that kind of situation. (laughs) I am a hard worker. It's like, well, that person works hard too. And they don't have their needs met right now. Let's ask questions about that. And so I think that it would challenge people in the church in a different way to start to have those conversations, to start to dig into those questions. But I think that if we started to do that and then reallocate our funds in ways that addressed kind of the roots of those things instead of, you know, oh, hey, we all collected this many pounds of food and now we can feed these people. And now we feel really good about, for one week. And we feel good about ourselves because I did this thing, Yeah, right? That gets back to that kind of consumer framework that I talk about in the the book of it's, it's about, I feel good because I did this to help. So you also have a power dynamic there. Mm -hmm. I still have the power and I'm helping this person and and what Jesus is inviting us to do is to say, like Zacchaeus, for those of us who have resources or for congregations or denominations have a lot of resources, I'm giving it all back. Yeah, to some um, people, I'm going to give them more than what I And to some to people, with. I'm going to give more <laughs> yeah. than what I owed. Yeah, if yeah. I have defrauded you in any way, then four times what yeah. I took. 
Uh, and you don't have to look too far into the history of a number of denominations to see that, like, no, a lot of those endowment funds came from slaveholders. So yeah. I've got some ideas about where that money could go. I didn't expect to read about reparations in your book. Oh, that's because you don't know me very well. Uh, well, that's my fault, and <laughs> I can I can I can fix that now. Can you talk a bit about that? Because as I read that, I was like, golly. I mean, I was challenged, but can you? I don't. I've tried to talk tackle that topic with some good friends before, and it never goes well because we both end up going. I don't know. I, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I think that it's an imperative conversation to have. And I use Ta-Nehisi Coates' article from The Atlantic mm-hmm. uh, on reparations as a, as a source. And uh, I would highly recommend if there's people who are listening or for if you haven't read that, uh, he is much more eloquent than I am. But I think if we look back at the history of the United States, it is impossible for us to look at where we are today without seeing that the way that wealth has been acquired and then distributed and passed down in this country is along racial lines. And, and, you know, we typically talk about this with regard to uh, African-American or black Americans. Uh, You know, the same could be said for, or or similar things could be said for indigenous people, for native Americans. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's part of why the Supreme court case that uh, was handed down I think July, uh, you know, kind of upholding Oklahoma, half of Oklahoma as a reservation. Yeah. I don't know what you're Um, referencing. Oh, so there was a case, a Supreme Court case in that had to do with who owns the land basically in Oklahoma. Like Mm. is half of the state of Oklahoma a reservation or does it all belong to the state? And that was a really big landmark case because the the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the tribes. Really? Yeah, which was, you know, 2020 is handing us, you know, some good things. Uh, And so similar things could be said about what do we do with reparations as far as like, we all live on land that was not acquired by ethical means, right? Like I just bought this house that is on the land of the Menominee and the Potawatomi and uh, the Lakota and there were like two other tribes when I looked it up that it's this, it's their ancestral land. If I go back in the records of the city, my house is 110 years old. And, uh, you know, it was, this neighborhood was settled by German immigrants and things like that. So I can look back and I can say, this is who the official record of this land is to, but this is not who this land belongs to because it yeah. was never purchased. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, in all of these instances, I can look at the things in my life, the way this that I build wealth now that my family builds wealth, right? Like we just bought this house. We didn't like at some point, the ethics of that break down, which isn't to say you should not buy houses. I just bought a house. But how do we think through this in ways that challenge us to imagine what could be possible instead of just saying like, well, that's just the way it is. And that's the only thing that we can do. Yeah. You know, I think that sometimes people get bogged down with reparations because they think, well, I didn't own slaves. Uh, or my family didn't own slaves. My ancestors didn't own slaves, especially if you're in the South. It's like, well, everybody knows somebody 
who like their ancestors were like big plantation owners, right? Yeah. They're like, well, I'm not like that person, but my grandparents benefited from the GI bill after World War II. They got money to build houses. The GI bill wasn't applied across racial lines. Yeah, There were people who were promised things for going off to war and they didn't receive them. Mm -hmm. You know, we can think about who was able to be employed and where were they allowed to be employed? Uh, you can think about all of those sorts of questions. You can think about things like redlining, which I talk about in the book yep. a little bit. Just take just a training like, on that every three months. It's a horrible yeah, practice. Yeah. It's a horrible. Yeah. Bank, you know all about this. <laughs> um, <laughs> that part anyway. <laughs> <laughs> things like that where, you know, there are still in, I live in Milwaukee. And mm -hmm. so the book, The Color of Law, like uses my city as a, as a case study of like how bad this can get. Mm. So you know, you have entire families who put their eggs in the basket that they were told, hey, buy a house. That's how you build wealth. Go and do this. This is security for you and your children and grandchildren, whatever. And then with the ways that these loans were applied or doled out, just saw property values crash through yeah. the floor. And so I think when we start to pull conversations about reparations into the here and now and into like, no, no, no. We're not talking about your ancestors. Let's talk about your grandparents. Let's talk about your parents. Let's talk yeah. about, uh, you know, those kinds of, of people. Um, you know, let's talk about right now. Yeah. And, you know, who, who is able to get into certain rooms and uh, have access to certain uh, scholarships? How many jobs have you gotten because you knew somebody? Not because of, of what your diploma said. Yeah. All of them, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not the interview, but after mm -hmm. that, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, yeah. So I'm curious. I want to. I want to roll it back. So, what is the church's complicity in either reparations or all of that? Like, I, I understand the governmental, the financial, uh, the economic, mm -hmm. um, but what is the church's complicity? Yeah. So Jamar Tisby does a really good job of this in his book, The Color of Compromise. And so anyone who reads my book and is like oh, I want to know more about this. Like the next book you read is Jamar's. But, you, you know, if, you're, if your wife has questions about that, then you didn't hear that from me. I don't want to like... Well, I can tell her that a pastor told me that I should read it. Oh, and yeah, I feel like that's, that's true. the Jesus card always wins. Yeah, always, absolutely. always. Yes. Yeah, no, um, it, your eternal salvation depends on it, actually. <laughs> I would like to be absolved. <laughs> Thus saith the Lord. Um <laughs> so, no, Javar's book is really, really good on this. And so when you look at things like everything from how certain denominations were formed and that certain denominations exist because of splits that happened around slavery in mm -hmm. the Civil War, mm -hmm. um, you know, you have some complicity there. I talk in the book about how the fellowship hall that I grew up in that I like took piano lessons in was funded in part by the KKK. Mm. Um, like the, the funding for constructing that building in 1987 came from the KKK. Um, and so things like that, thinking about who are the, the elders in the churches, you know, going back, who are okaying certain decisions, who are choosing, hey, we're going to buy smoke machines instead of investing in the community or whatever, right? Yeah. Like anytime we're making those decisions corporately, and choosing who gets to be those decision makers, uh, it's an opportunity for complicity or not. Um, and I think that that there is a division between church and state and also the way that we have chosen as the church to 
participate in politics or the ways that we have permitted our congregants to just participate in politics without thinking, you know, like what would Jesus do here Mm -hmm. with this candidate? Not to go like early 90s on us, um, (laughs) but... You know, I think that all of those are marks of complicity, right? When we decide that like, okay, the land that this church was built on was was unlawfully taken, was wrongfully taken from uh, indigenous people who this is their ancestral land. And we're not going to interrogate that at all because that's just too complicated. And we knowingly do that. Then we become complicit mm. with the ongoing injustice of that. Uh, when we choose to say, you know what, we'll take money from this group because we really need a fellowship hall. And so like, we're not racist, but Mm -hmm. then we become complicit in that. When we decide what the deal breakers are and what aren't the deal breakers, when we decide, you know, I think of, you know, being in like uh, cities right now and which churches are choosing to buy property and in what neighborhood and how is that driving gentrification? How is that pushing poor people further and further out? And if we're not asking critical questions about why and is this the right thing to do and who are we displacing in this action and how are we going to try to safeguard against that? Do the people who are in this neighborhood even want us here? Yeah. Then we become complicit even if that's not our intention. Yeah. So you said you didn't want to go 90s, but I'm about to. It was actually this chapter where I realized, I'm like, I think we're the same age. So (laughs) what the heck is Captain Planet doing in a book about Jesus? Oh my Um, gosh. Yeah. I read that. I was like, there's there's a really small window for Captain Planet. It's (laughs) it's not a big window. Um, We didn't have cable. So my like cartoon (laughs) memories are real small. It's a real narrow set. (laughs) So what is Captain Planet doing in a book about Jesus though, in all seriousness? Yeah. So I was trying to think through what was the story I was given, right? Because that's the, that's where I start all the chapters mm-hmm. is like, this is the story that formed us, the story that formed me. And so I was trying to think through like, what is my earliest memory of any sort of environmental thing, environmentalism, creation care, whatever. Cause I grew up in rural West Virginia, like Southwestern Virginia mm-hmm. and back in the mountains and the trees. And so there was lots of nature yeah. Um, and I remember seeing like the commercials for like the Arbor Day Foundation and things like that. And, you know, all the PSAs like go plant a tree. And I'm like looking at the forest behind everywhere. my house. They're like, everywhere. is this really necessary? <laughs> and so Captain Planet and me thinking it was really cool. And then my parents kind of being like, eh, I don't know about that was the first thing. First time I remembered this like uh, this distance mm-hmm. between God created the world and it's a good creation and like, eh, but maybe we don't need to go that crazy. Like yeah. maybe, yeah, that seems excessive. Yeah. Um, so that's how Captain Planet ended up in my book. <laughs> so um, I, I springboard off that because I do want to get to a more theological thing. So for me, I also was told, I remember, I remember the day my dad watched me watching Captain Planet and he asked me why I liked it. And I just liked, like, I just thought the powers were kind of cool. I don't think the oh, ecology gosh, yeah. caught up with me for, probably a few no. years later. And then I was like, you put the oh, rings together. Our fantastic. powers combined. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I, I transcribe all of these. So I'm really, I've been actually looking, I'm, uh, that's, I wrote down two questions to ask this one. And then probably the next one, <laughs> um, because I've been looking for the proper YouTube clip so that in the transcript, people can click it and, and really see, cause I don't, 
I don't think most people know who Captain Planet is. No. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't, I, I actually think I remember the episode. I'm trying to find, and it doesn't matter. Um, mm-hmm. But I feel like the pushback that I got from my family was um, we have total dominion over creation. We'll do what we want. Yeah. It's all going to burn anyway. Who the heck cares? Which I don't think is a good biblical reading. But mm-hmm. with what you studied on ecology and, and everything else and, and the way that the church and the culture as, as a whole have treated the environment and, and the planet. I'm curious, do you feel like it's connected to end times theology or just Genesis theology? Like, no, this is ours. We do what we want with it. It's my house. If I want to, mm-hmm. if I want to rip the wall out, I'll rip the wall out. It's none of your darn business. I feel like it's more connected to end times theology, but I don't quite know why. So I'm curious your take. I would say it's definitely connected to end times theology. And I would argue that even a lot of the Genesis theology that you see prominent in evangelical circles, uh, you know, Genesis theologies that would like lead people to build large arcs in Kentucky and things like that. Um, (laughs) I would argue that that's more connected to end times theology than a lot of people would, would recognize at first. You're uh, talking about answers in Genesis, correct? Yes, 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 Yes. I am. Uh huh. Um, (laughs) Unless there's other arcs in Kentucky that I didn't know about, (laughs) in which case I have more questions. Um, But yeah, I think, there's so much that can be traced back. And and I went real deep on all the history stuff that ended up being, you know, just very small snippets in, in each chapter. Because when I submitted my first draft with three chapters of history at the beginning of the book, my editor said, nobody will read this. I so, would. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank I, you. I um, <laughs> but that's me. I'm the guy that buys Robert Alter's version of Genesis, which is 500 right, right. pages. So I would. But Well, I'll send you my three <laughs> chapters of history that I then had to like parse out into smaller. How painful is uh, that? Smaller bits. Oh. oh, it was very painful. Um, <laughs> but there's so much in modern evangelical thought in the United States that really goes back to a lot of this uh, idea about end times and a really like dispensationalist kind of reading Mm -hmm. of the end times. Uh, So, you know, and none of that really existed (laughs) until like the last like 150, 200 years. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 So you have like Darby, but even he at first was kind of disregarded as this like, okay, no, that's not, I mean, you could, all right, cool. You stay over there. (laughs) And then after world war one, uh, because prior to World War One, the predominant view had been like the world is just going to get better and better and better. People are going to continue to advance, progress, and, and, you know. And there were many reasons why that wasn't warranted even before World War One, but that was kind of the prevailing opinion. And then after World War One, it was like, oh shoot, we're not just going to get better and better. Look what we just did! Like, look mm-hmm. what humanity just did! The mm-hmm. types of hell that humans can create. And so then you start to see this end times theology start to gain a little traction of like, oh, no, the world's going to end. And that was really believable because the world had just been at war. And so kind of like with conspiracy theories right now with coronavirus, people will grab onto it because they're looking for answers. And it kind of makes sense. Yeah. Like you can kind of see how those dots connect. It doesn't mean it's good information, but you know, humans are always trying to make meaning. We're always trying to make the pieces fit. And if they don't fit together neatly, which usually they don't, then, you know, sometimes we just jam them together and try to be like, look, we finished the puzzle and ignore all of the (laughs) the mess. 
So you start to see it gain steam. You see more panic around the time of uh, the Great Depression and then the New Deal passing and people starting to just kind of enter into this more reactive posture of, of saying like, well, no, it can't be that. Because if you're going to have this end times theology that says that Jesus is going to come scoop us up out of this mess, it's all going to burn anyway. You have to have a very particular way that you're reading scripture. And so if you start to mess with any of these other things that would change the assumptions you're coming to scripture with, then that end times theology no longer works. So you have to really dig into and entrench yourself into that whole hermeneutic. And then we end up where we are today. Yeah. But there's Matthew Avery Sutton's book, American Apocalypse, kind of pulls all of this around with like, yeah, so much of evangelicalism is predicated on end times theology. Sorry, you're going to walk out of this in interview just, with like just wrote it down. <laughs> 12 other books that I'm like, no, you should read this too. Uh, but especially if you like history, Sutton's book is phenomenal. I do like history. I can't spell apocalypse, but that's okay because I have it recorded yeah, right now. That's all right. Literally recorded. <laughs> um, so I want to ask two final questions and I'm going to give you back to your yeah. family. And so the first one is I want to, I want to kind of predicate off that conversation that we had about theosis and then just the title of your book. So um, if that's happening internally to each one of us, like we're constantly, if we're, if we're doing faith, I think the way that we're intended mm -hmm. to with uh, proximity to people that need help. And sometimes that's us, you know, if we're doing it the way that I think Jesus modeled and, and the way that we should mm -hmm. be doing it, as opposed to uh, Kiwanis with a better nonprofit status, um, <laughs> uh, which stole from a friend of mine, but I like it. I'm trying to figure out how to that's make good. a shirt out that's of good. it without getting sued by <laughs> Kiwanis. <laughs> um, what does being born again and again look like for an institution as big as the church and not necessarily just the Western church, like maybe just the church overall? Because there's an inherent, like if we do this, people lose jobs. Um, yeah. Like the church employs a massive amount of people. They do a lot of good things, but when you're born again, and then again, like I know me personally, like things go away. Like my views and some of the stuff that I do, they stop happening. And that also yep. has an impact. So what is, mm -hmm. I mean, what does that look like for the church? Thinking about that more as a body. So this is why I'm not the Pope. Um, you know, that and the fact that I'm a woman, um, and I'm Protestant, but hey, the um, progress, maybe we'll do it. <laughs> I don't want to be the Pope. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, that's a really, really good question. And I tried very much in the book to focus on like just evangelicals and people who, you know, maybe grew up evangelical, but no mm -hmm. longer associate with that. Uh, because I think that the church is so big and so varied, and this process is going to look different for different denominations and for different kind of uh, streams within the faith, uh, even if we're all heading toward the same thing. If I am lost and I've gone too far east, then my journey to get back on the, on the path isn't going to look the same as yours if you go too far north, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... I want to be really careful not to like try to prescribe like, well, this is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I think that in general, uh, that kind of framework of connection instead of consumption, asking really hard questions of whether it's our individual congregations or our denominations or, or just more broadly, like, with, like what are we doing here? Right. Yeah. Like, what are we doing? You know, if we can say, how are we connecting with God and with our neighbor and with ourselves. Cause there's a whole lot of like, 
super unholy self-denial that happens in churches too of just like don't know your feelings don't know your thoughts don't know your desires just shove it all down and be nice which is not helpful um (laughs) and so you know i think if we can start asking questions about like how can we invite people into greater connection with god their their selves and their neighbors how can we invite people to uh to you know, kind of continue on in practicing that. And so what are the practices that serve that well? What are the institutions that serve that well? What are the social gatherings that serve that well? And then let the rest of it fall away. Mm. Um, You know, I think if we can start to look at our congregations or denominations or the church more broadly and say, where have we caused harm? intentionally or unintentionally. And I would really love for us as, as institutions to just get away from this, like, well, but we didn't mean for that to cause harm because that's not helpful. Right. And, and to say, okay, so if step one is we want to cultivate practices and gatherings and liturgies, whatever, that connect people, God, neighbor, self, uh, in more honest ways and invite them to continue in that practice, then then the next step beyond that would be to say, okay, and now that we are starting to get more grounded and more centered within ourselves and our relationships, um, how do we repair the harm we have done? And then to start to ask those questions, to start to to dig into that, to say, where do we need to make financial restitution? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do we need to say, you know what, we we no longer have the moral authority to speak on this issue because of this moral failing. And so we will defer to this group or to these people or to this uh, population because they are the ones that we silenced in harming them. So how do we start to do some of those like either restorative or transformative justice models within our the way that we relate to the world to say, yeah. we have caused harm. We will repair it because we follow Jesus mm. and Jesus, you know, can't, comes to seek and to save and to restore and to redeem. And we have spent a whole lot of time instead just camping out and saying like, yeah, we're the redeemed while we're sitting on top of a pile of bones. God's inviting us to resurrection though, not to build camp on bones. Mm. Mm, there could almost be a benediction because you started preaching there and I'm fine with that. I like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah, no, that's not a bad thing. So no, no apologies needed. Um, so you've mastered God, as you said, um, you know, your husband. Yeah, so, so this, this will be my last question. So it's, it's a question I've asked everyone this year. So if you were to try to explain, you know, your, your daughter comes up, my daughter comes up, my son comes up and they're like, hey, Megan, what is God? Like, who is like, what is like, you're going to try to wrap into words that what is that? I mean, I would start by quoting scripture. Mm -hmm. God is love. And then especially if I was talking to a kid, I like to try to pull images or relationships or things like that. Like God is like when you go over to your Nana's house and she's so excited to teach you how to quilt and you're both just so excited to jump into this. And and you get frustrated because you stick yourself with the needle and you don't get your stitches right. And she's with you the whole time. And she can't make it suck less. She can't make you learn it faster. She can't keep your fingers from hurting, but she's with you and she's guiding you. And if you pay attention, 
then you get that guidance that you need mm-hmm. or, or, you know, or God is like a warm house when it's 30 below zero in Wisconsin <laughs> and it's warm and safe. God is like the wind that just like sweeps you down the beach and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to keep my feet under me right now. And usually I, you know, I, I worked as a children's pastor for close to 10 years. I would rather talk to kids about God all day than adults hmm. in a lot of ways, because, you know, I think we, we tend to get real freaked out as adults sometimes like, how am I going to explain this? Right? Like, how am I going to wrap God up into a neat and tidy little bow? And I remember I was talking to a group of third through fifth graders about the Trinity one time, which why I don't know, uh, <laughs> but I was. And so I was trying, I was like drawing all the diagrams, right? Like the triangles and the different things where I'm like trying to explain this. And one of them was like, oh, I got it. It's a God blob. And I was like, yep, that's Nailed, it. Nailed it. it. It's a God blob. <laughs> um, and so I think that there is an imagination that kids bring to things. There's a willingness to be like, oh yeah. And God is like this. And God is like that that adults feel either silly or they feel uh, too vulnerable to engage in, or they are like, you know, embarrassed to be like, well, well, when I think about God, I think about, you know, my grandpa who took me fishing. Or when Mm -hmm. I think about God, I think about my older cousin who, you know, always stood up to the bullies for me. Or when, you know, when I think about God, you know, all of that stuff. Right. Or, or we are like, you know what, when I think about God, it, it doesn't feel safe. And I have a lot of trauma around that or a lot of wounds around that, but we, we don't feel safe admitting that to one another. And so, um, I would rather talk to kids about it all day cause they're, they're just wide open usually, uh, you know, with what they think or what they feel, <laughs> but that's usually where I would, would start is to yeah. say, well, first and foremost, God is love and God is with us. And there's no place in creation, no distance to which God will not go to be with us. That's what we learn in the incarnation, right? It's like, no, God became flesh and to, to use the message, like moved into the neighborhood. Jesus dying on the cross isn't just to say like, oh, and now we're redeemed from sin and I don't have to die. It's to say, no, like Jesus is with us even into death. There's no place where God cannot reach, mm. will not go to be with and to love and, and to, to call us into life. And so what are some things that we can think about to help us imagine that? Because that's really hard to grasp. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. So you do a lot of things. So you're an author, a mom, a pastor, um, you're on a podcast. So where do you want mm-hmm. people to go? Like, where do they go to follow your stuff, buy the books everywhere that you can buy the books. Yeah. You know, that, that, where, where do you want them to go? All that stuff. Where should people find All me? the jazz. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, the easiest way to find me is if you leave a little mug of coffee outside your back steps and just like set a big cardboard box up and like just trap me in there. Um, <laughs> like you would like a stray cat or something. Um, it's been a really long day. That was a weird answer. <laughs> um, you know, people can find me on Twitter. You can edit that part out if you want. <laughs> it's very I strange. I don't know if I will or not. <laughs> I even made my mind up. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be one of those things that when my husband listens, because he listens to all the interviews I do, he's going to be like, that was really weird. Why were you being weird? Anyway, uh, people can find me at mwestra, MKE on Twitter and on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Megan K. Westra. 
I'm not on there as much though, because Facebook is a hellscape. Um, <laughs> yes. My website is meganwester.com. Podcast is The Podluck. So mm-hmm. think like church potluck, but podluck. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be more episodes of that coming soon. I have I have some in the hopper because I way overestimated what all I was going to be able to do while launching a book and moving in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but there will be some more episodes <laughs> of that <laughs> at the end of August. Um, and I think that's it. They can buy the book wherever. I think as of this afternoon, Amazon was out of stock. That's and great. so there was a, yeah, it's a great problem to have. And so it was a longer ship time if people were expecting to, to be able to hop on Amazon and do like a two day prime thing. It's more like it will ship out in five days, but then it'll be two days from there. So if you order through like bookshop.org or Barnes and Noble or obviously like your local independent bookseller, they can get it all to you probably as fast as Amazon can. So. Yeah, 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 definitely. Well, good. Well, I appreciate your time so much again tonight and yeah. to your family as well. Make your peace with what remains. I was really, really challenged by Megan about complacency as I read through her book. Her book is very good and you really should go and get it. The bulk of the middle though, I just kept being challenged. So many status quos and and while I don't struggle with money as Megan had said that she did in talking about money, there are other things that she referenced that I genuinely do. And it's a daily, weekly, sometimes hourly struggle but i keep coming back to something that she said on restorative justice you know where she said if there's a way that we the church you and i our communities have caused harm that we must repair it because we follow jesus and jesus comes to seek and to save and restore and redeem and that means something that's a heck of a challenge i want to thank heath mcneese again his music in this episode you can check out his links and megan's in the show notes the music from today's episode is in the spotify playlist for the show i hope you're all well talk next week be blessed